Welcome to the seminar series of the Theology, Medicine, and Culture Initiative at Duke Divinity School. TMC seminars are a semi-monthly gathering of faculty, clinicians, students, trainees, and others interested in the intersection of theology, medicine, and culture. The seminars are presented and supported in collaboration with the Trent Center for Bioethics, Humanities, and History of Medicine. Welcome, everybody, to the TMC seminar um, and to our first seminar after the removal of the desks. Yeah. Thank you, uh, Nikki and Marjorie. This is pretty cool. We have we can accommodate more people, and now we have even more people to accommodate. Um, we are delighted today to welcome Dr. Terry Laws. Dr. Laws is uh, teaches at University of Michigan Dearborn, and. Uh, did her doctorate work in religious studies and has her scholarship is focused on, and Terry, I'm going to do injustice to this because I just realized I was introducing you and, and uh, your, your, your interests are, are broad, but uh, the, particularly on issues that focus on um, ethics, bioethics particularly, um, and the dynamics of race and culture and uh, in uh, bioethics, she is uh, a scholar in the, the field which some of you guys may know about, of womanist theology, um, and gave a terrific talk yesterday, for those of you who were able to, to go, um, on race uh, and, uh, what was the title? Medical Something? research. Reparations. <laughs> yeah, medical research and reparations on just this history of uh, racial differences and injustices in the conduct, conduct of medical research and the question of how we repair all the harm that's been done there. Today, we have a topic that I know I'm particularly interested in, given my own work in palliative care, um, African-American Christianity and, the, and physician-assisted suicide. Um, and Dr. Laws is going to end up asking you guys some questions soon, so be on your toes. Um, we're looking forward to a good conversation. Do we have any? Do we have the sign-up sheet going around anywhere? So remember, we're going to pass the sign-up sheet around. If your name is on there, just check. We're just kind of keeping up with who's able to come. And uh, welcome, Dr. Laws. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Curlin. I'm so pleased to be here, and I'm pleased to meet the co- see again the colleagues who I who I've met in my couple of days here, and particularly a friend and colleague, Dr. Patrick Smith. I always appreciate your presence. Um, I would like to just briefly get, well, go through the presentation, and and as I do with my own students, I like to have conversation, and they welcome that, and I hope you will too. Um, Just kind of show a hand, I'd like to get a sense of who's in the room, a mix of the MDev students, okay, and medical students. Is there someone, and is there another group? MTS. MTS? MTS. Okay. Okay. Prospective students as well. Oh, okay. Okay, very good. Awesome. What's that? I'm a chaplain. And you're a chaplain. Very good. So you have uh, an important role to play here. Okay, very good. So just uh, quickly want to go through some of the things that we want to be sure to cover. Why religion? Uh, why this intersection, uh, the intersection that you see here, some of the elements of the intersection. I want to talk a little bit about legalization of physician-assisted suicide in Washington, D.C., and I'll tell you a little bit more about why that is. 
Uh, and then I'd like to begin to explore uh, how African-American religion and uh, medicine may have some commonalities where, um, PA, where I vision or I interpret PAS as a political movement, there may in fact be some political commonalities um, between um, some uh, professional medicine, uh, professional um, professionals in medicine, sorry, and African-American religion. Okay, so just a very quick primer, what's African, or why do we start a religion at all? Uh, for this talk, oh, oh, okay, okay. For this talk, um, in my own work, I actually focus on a couple of these areas. The description of religion, how is it as it is, the function of religion, for those of you who are familiar with uh, cultural work, Durkheim and Geertz, you know, we're talking about sociology of religion. How do people experience religion as a part of their culture and the moods and motivations, as Geertz would say, that he that, that group wants to express? Um, so we want to talk a little bit then, too, about the language uh, of religion, that um, groups interpret religion from their own experience, hermeneutics, right? Interpret religion from their own experience. So this idea of contextual religion is much more um, accepted than it was, say, 30 or 40 years ago. And um, the expression of womanists, for example, race class, the lens of race, class, and gender is one of the areas that, um, that I work through. Okay. And then, so we want to get down into the uh, black religious thought. Where does it come from, for example? Um, my students, especially in, um, in the Introduction to African American Religion course, ask me, how is it that African Americans are Christians at all? Right. Now, Dearborn, let me say just a little bit about Dearborn. Dearborn, for those of you who may or may not know, has uh, Dearborn and Metropolitan Detroit has one of the um, largest Arab American con concentrations in the country. So this, um, so it becomes a very interesting intersection then when I'm introducing African American religious experience and students who um, are Arab American, either um, uh, lots of Iraqi Christians, lots of um, um, Syrian Christians, but also Muslims from different um, nations in the Middle <coughs> East are asking, how is it? It's really interesting coming from their perspective. How is it that African Americans can be Christians at all, given the history, what they understand of the history of African American experience? So this is part of what then gets expressed in black religious thought, right? So this is part of that um, uh, response. Okay. So here, I like I used this slide yesterday, but based on um, my understanding of who you are, I wanted to come back to this slide. For this reason, we understand uh, medicine, medical, and if you would replace medical racism here, we understand that medical research and medical racism are yes for healing, right? But we also need to understand that there are other types of healings that are going on or potentially can go on in the bioethical moment as well as in the medical um, encounter in general. So one of the things we want to be sure we understand about African-American culture and religion is that it is very relational, 
right? And bioethics in particular, we're often talking about autonomy. And when we're talking about um, physician-assisted suicide, autonomy is the byword. But this, um, I assert, is, um, is problematic coming from within the African-American experience where, where justice is often much more of, a, of an issue or much more of a mot motivating. Again, there's that word motivating, right? So uh, when we're talking about repair, I want to go back to that question uh, that students <coughs> often ask me in that introduction to African-American religion. How is it that African-Americans can be Christians? So part of the repair work is reconciling the harms that have been done through the introduction of race into Christianity as it was being passed along. Okay? So race and medicine have had their own parts to play in terms of this, in terms of even developing race as a construct. So we, part of the repair work then has to happen through both of those institutions. Both Christianity as well as medicine has a part to play in the repair work. And when we think of repair, we're thinking about reconciling. How do we, how do we um, acknowledge that context matters, but that it doesn't have to be harmful? That it simply can be different. That is acceptable. So that's what I mean here. And that happens at many different levels. Repair work. Okay. So these are not, um, these values are more of a crosswalk. They are not an opposite. Okay. I'm so, I'm so, um, uh, uh, this is, would be the point with my students. Where I was like, are there any questions? <laughs> are there any questions? <laughs> Okay, so if you have a question, hold it, and I'll then I'll come. I hopefully I will uh, be able to have time to discuss it. Oh, there we go. Okay, so let's talk about Washington D.C. and physician-assisted suicide. First, let me make sure that everyone understands what we mean by physician-assisted suicide. And yes, I'm aware that there are other terms for physician-assisted suicide. Uh, do I need to clarify? Everybody understand? Right. Okay, great. So, yes, I'm aware that there are other terms, and it is intentional that I use physician, the older term, physician-assisted suicide, when I'm talking about the African-American context. So let me talk a little bit about how this played out in Washington, D.C., and I'd like to um, play this video. Oh, I shouldn't. I should have checked for sound. Make sure we have, oops. Make sure we have sound here. Okay, so let me just tell you a little bit about what this setup is. This is, um, in Washington, D.C., um, so medical aid and dying is, medical aid and dying, again, purposefully using that term when I'm talking about the movement, medical aid and dying is legal in Washington, D.C. This comes as, uh, culturally, this comes uh, as a bit of a surprise for those of us who um, have understood the past um, surf, on the surface, at least, Washington, D.C. has long been identified as something of a chocolate city. Does everybody know what I mean by chocolate city? A city that has a lot of African Americans, right? There are very few cities across the country that have um, these very large populations of African Americans. Of course, Detroit is one of them, right? 82% uh, 
of the population of Detroit is, is African, identifies as African American. In Washington, D.C., that was true in the 70s and 80s and has begun to change in the 2000s. In the 2000s, um, as, we, as is estimated at present, the population of Washington, D.C. is right about 50% uh, African American. But this is still a quite large population given that African Americans are only about 13% of the total U.S. population. So one could perhaps argue that not as much of a chocolate city as it was, but that it, in fact, still, in terms of total population in the U.S., qualifies as, um, as a chocolate city. So the question then is, how does politics operate in a city where um, minority populations are actually the majority, or at least the plurality? So in this case, then, the uh, introduction of a, a death with dignity bill or bill was introduced into city council 2015, I think it was, <laughs> and by 2017 it was legal. And the question is, how does that happen, and what part did religion have to play? Uh, um, given that African Americans were not just a, part, a large part of the population, but also a large part of the city council, which was taking the ordinance under consideration. So this, um, this little clip is from this woman here, Yvette Alexander, who was acting at that time as the chair of Health and Human Services Committee. At this point in the, um, in the legislative process, they have already had uh, committee hearings in which about 70 residents, uh, 70 speakers, I should say, both uh, residents of the district as well as persons who um, are part of the national movement had spoken on behalf or in support of or in, or in opposition to, so about 70 persons um, participated in about an eight or nine hour long um, public hearing. This is a year later when now the council is ready to vote, and this is their first reading. So uh, Ms. Alexander gives um, the purpose here. The stated purpose of Bill 2138 is to provide procedures and requir requirements regarding the request for and dispensation of covered medications to qualified patients seeking to die in a humane and peaceful manner, to Thank define you. the duties of attending physicians and consulting physicians, to provide for counseling of patients and family notification, to require informed decision-making and waiting periods, to require reporting from the Department of Health, and to define the act on contracts, wills, insurance, and annuity policies, to provide for immunities, liabilities, and penalties, to provide an opt-out provision for health care providers, and to provide for claims by government for cost incurred. The bill was introduced by Councilmember Che on January 14th of 2015. Physician-assisted suicide originated in Oregon in 1997. Since that time, it has been established in the state of Washington, Vermont, and California. In the states where it is permitted, physician-assisted suicide has the same general characteristics. An individual who is at least 18 years of age, who has been diagnosed with a terminal illness that will likely end their life within the next six months, 
is permitted to make two separate requests for the covered medication, thus allowing their physician and pharmacist to prescribe and dispense such medication. This bill embodies the same tenets. Since Oregon's passage of the Death with Dignity Act, similar legislation has been introduced, but it has failed to become law in 22 other states. A hearing on this legislation took place on July 10th of 2015, where many of the members of the public voiced either their support or disapproval of this legislation. I would like to thank two groups who have been really active um, with regards to this legislation, Compassion and Choices and No Suicide DC. Those were the main um, opposing sides of this bill and both were very passionate about their positions on this legislation. The committee considered all of these concerns in developing the committee print. According to the fiscal impact statement um, issued, the funds are not sufficient in fiscal year 2017 through fiscal year 2020 budget and financial plan to implement the provisions of this bill. The committee considered this bill on October 5th of 2016. During the committee meeting, I mentioned several concerns that I feel I should repeat today. In addressing my concerns with this legislation, I choose to put aside the argument of religion or morality. That is subjective and it means different things to different people. And that's something that I don't intend to decide for others when making decisions regarding end-of-life care. Okay. African-American woman, right, very clearly says, I'm putting aside religion. Okay. So we could take her at, we could take her at face value and, um, <coughs> and say that as a part of the legislative process in a pluralistic society, what we want is legislators to put aside religion. Yeah. That is one interpret. Why are you looking like that? <laughs> yes. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm just like I'm, I'm going through all my Balzian and the wisdom. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it was so visceral. I'm sorry. I had to. <laughs> so, so that's one interpretation, right? So we'll hold that one out, but that is one interpretation. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for your good humor. <laughs> okay, next, uh, next <laughs> council person. <laughs> the stated purpose of Bill twenty nine thirty eight is to provide procedures and requirements. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, oops. Request for. Let me go back for just one second. Can we just want to take a look at the council, though? Right? Okay. Uh, it's actually, we can't see everyone, but it's about half, about half African American. Okay. Okay. All right. So let's go on to the next council person. Oh, let me just say one, one word about uh, Ms. Bonds. Ms. Bonds is representing not a, a ward or district, she is representing uh, an at large seat. So her seat is across the district. Not, um, not as opposed, I think they have eight wards. It's eight wards that they have. Um, Ms. Alexander is, was a ward. She was re representing a ward. 
that had a substantial uh, number of African Americans. While I have strong personal feelings with regard to the creation of the universe and humanity, I do not have the authority to impose my views upon others. I will not take the liberty of even thinking for others on a matter of life and death. And because of this, I am at peace voting in support of this bill. Thank you, Chairman. Okay. So um, I'll fault myself for part of what she also says, though, is she gives a defense of her personal religious perspectives, right? Of her personal religious ex uh, uh, expressions. And she um, identifies uh, in that defense that her spirituality is intact. She wants everyone to know that dis despite how she's voting, her spirituality is intact. So one of the things that's very interesting, though, is that looking at the council, every African-American who was representing either at large or who was representing a ward spoke about their moral defense. Every one of them gave some kind of moral defense. Sometimes, and I just want to, uh, sometimes their comments fell into the category of in the intensity of public engagement around this question. Sometimes the uh, council members' pre-vote comments were about personal stories that the council member or their family had during the <coughs> anguish, of course, of, that, of these very difficult end-of-life decisions. A third category of comments was the explanation of the council members' decision-making of their vote, how it is that they came to their decision, um, and then the fourth category is that first one I talked about, which actually is the defense of the morality of the decision, including the role of religion. It's very striking okay, that every African American felt the need to give some type of comment related to, to their vote. Half of, the, and this is a 13-member council, half of non-black council members gave some kind of comment, and usually it fell into the category of personal story um, or um, the anguish. The, the, this is the anguish story. There's all quite valid responses, of course, but are, ought we ask the question, in terms of African Americans, why is it that the African Americans have a, a very clear response in which they feel the need to give some kind of moral conversation? And I suggest, you know, we realize that, you know, of course, you know, uh, correlation and causation, these are not the same things, right? But there seems to be something cultural going on here. So here, again, just, a, just an overview of how it is that, why it is that we might would talk about this as a cultural issue. Okay? Um, let me point out here, right? Sociology of religion, African Americans are, are um, for those, those of us who use sociology of religion, yeah. the issue is, you know, what's observable? African Americans report going to church more often than whites. 
right? Um, African Americans um, report prayer, right? Everybody prays, but I'm just talking about the science and sociology of religion. What are they measuring? They're measuring things that are observable, and um, so it 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 um, then sort of makes sense that African Americans might be continuing to use um, religiosity as grounding for moral decision in something as difficult as end of life. Okay. And, well, let me say, make sure I add that. And um, in terms of public polling, this last one here, in terms of public polling, African Americans, of course, are less likely to um, find physician-assisted suicide morally acceptable. Less likely. So I suggest that um, the grounding in African-American religiosity is, uh, the issue is around this relational value. Okay? This, this, again, going back to that idea that autonomy is not the prime Right. Even even when autonomy, uh, well, uh, I'm sorry, we need to think about autonomy not in terms of individual. Right? Of course, we know that in some communities, autonomy is much more relational. And I would suggest that in African-American community, following African-American religiosity, guiding much of the perspective on uh, physician-assisted suicide, okay? again, I'm using that term purposefully, that... Um, that religiosity and relationality are two things that go together, that, that they're culturally grounded. Okay. And here, um, in my longer paper, I refer to, um, when I'm talking about moving toward community, I'm talking about moving toward King's beloved community. Right? That we, um, there's a whole conversation in the uh, physician-assisted suicide movement or the medical aid and dying movement to, to do outreach to African-American and Hispanic communities where this relationship between religiosity and the moral acceptance thereof are interconnected. That race and religion are interconnected in the question of um, physician-assisted suicide. So, now it's time for you to talk. Do we think that it's important that we understand, okay, that we understand this issue of culture, race and culture okay, as a part of decision-making at end of life in general, but physician-assisted suicide in particular? Okay? Very broad question. And then for those of you who are in medicine or moving toward being in medicine, right? How might understanding this impact the task? I'm going to call it that for the moment. The task of the spiritual assessment. Yes. Um, I'm curious, what are the rates of usage of physician assistance? Less than 1% of the population. Um, within that, what's the percentage as far as class, race? Largely, we're, we're talking about people who have resources. Um, race is a non-starter. It's 
Oregon, uh, over 21 years of, of their... So at, re, remember that Ms. Alexander said that reporting was part of... So almost all of the laws include a, a clause to produce an annual report for usage. And uh, Oregon, of course, is sort of held out as the gold standard because it's the one that's where it's been legal the longest. There has been exactly one African-American in 21 years of reporting. At least on the books, that's what we know. Okay. Um, I also did a look. Uh, so California and Washington, D.C. actually came online about the same time. Um, so there's been an opportunity to do at least one report from both of those jurisdictions. And California, um, I can't remember the number. I think the number for African Americans was zero uh, for uh, for whites, it was twice their number in the population. And I wonder, too, is there some way to, and maybe these can't be disentangled, because mm -hmm. I hear patients say to me, African-American patients say, you know, I don't, I don't want to go on hospice because that's like giving up. Mm -hmm. And they not only talk about Jesus, but they also talk about Tuskegee. Mm -hmm. And so is there a way to... I mean, I, I've had a number of patients say, you know, I don't want to do hospice. I know about this. Um, so is there a way to sort of disentangle the, the religious aspect from the sort of medical racism awareness aspect? Or do you think it's just, it's all tied together? I mean... My heart sank when you said that. Um, so this is, uh, this is where we have... A really the most immediate problem. Um, um, let me see if I have that on this. Oh, that's not. I, uh, okay, I won't, I won't go there. So our task, from my perspective, our task is um, multi-layered. Right. We, uh, I understand that in medicine, I do understand that in medicine, um, so I worked in healthcare, healthcare is the largest port portion of my career, I've had many, but it's the largest portion of the careers that I have had. So I'm often thinking about, you know, the reality that disciplines function very differently. Um, I'm in religious studies, which is more focused on, um, uh, if unless you're doing something like chaplaincy, focused on long-term solutions, right? Including eternity, right? <laughs> but um, in medicine, we have more pragmatic kinds of problems that we have to solve, right? Understand. So the answer to the question, though, is um, that's why I wanted to sort of get a sense of the spiritual assessment, we do that when we when we, we do that intake when we come in house. So how might we use that as as a practicum? I know when in um, in the ethics department where I did my training, it was not really in the, it just really wasn't used, right? So I want to get a sense of how we could perhaps use that in a better way. But yeah, I think ultimately the reality is that all of us have to commit to breaking down that barrier because it didn't begin yesterday and it won't end tomorrow. It is, it is a lifelong commitment for all of us. Now, can we think of solutions in the interim? Absolutely. So it's um, one of the 
I thought it was on this slide. Let me see here. Well, you're looking, I should say that Aaron is a hospice chaplain. Yeah. So he's, you're doing spiritual assessments on right. people. Who are and so how do you, so that, but so let me turn the question back though again. How might that task be different in terms of how it's actually, do you, are you using it? How are you incorporating what they've given on the spiritual assessment itself? Well, I mean, I, Understanding what you just said, what you just said. I mean, yeah. I, I always say that the spiritual assessment is a basic snapshot, and then right. other things unfold over time. So exactly. you may not get that in the spiritual assessment, right? But you, but I think you do get some of, you do get this combination not only of religious, religiosity, right. but also you're putting me on hospice. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I I think it was my my mentor when I came here. Uh, Richard Payne who said to me he said I tried to put people on hospice and he said people would say to my black self you're putting me on hospice because right. I'm black right um, you know, I hear this all, we hear this all over the country right so yeah. I think my, my goal is always to tell people we're not trying to help we're not trying right. to speed your death because the studies show people on hospice mm -hmm. longer so I always, always tell people we're trying to make you as comfortable as possible you know we're not right. trying to hasten your death and that's not what hospice is about and I mean, thankfully, in in a hospice context, because it's totally covered by Medicare, we have often greater access for a greater number of people because more people are eligible for it mm -hmm. through the Medicare hospice benefit. So we we can cover a lot of people that might not necessarily be able to access more advanced treatments. But there's also I'm on hospice because I couldn't get the advanced treatment, and now I'm on hospice. So by the time mm -hmm. they get to hospice, right. they, they think they've already experienced right. the, the, the race and class disadvantage that got them right. in hospice in the first place. So, but I think, but this is part of what has to be broken down. You asked specifically about race and PAS, or race and Tuskegee, right? But, um, and I was thinking it was here... Uh, and one question I asked about the medical enterprise itself, because you the, because then the the next time that you spoke, you then brought in um, payments, right? That's really Medicare, right? We talked mm -hmm. about right, and so all of these are are contributing though, in the context of why there's perceived injustice, and. And so that's why it has to be the entire enterprise. Think about, again, I don't know how it happens here, but think about what happens when, when families are moving toward that, that ending moment. And a large number of family is beginning to gather, right? And, and the first thing that some people on the team want to do in order to maintain, right, we want to maintain a sense of dignity on the, uh, in the unit itself, um, we begin to try to move people out of the room, especially when too many have been gathered, because we have we have rules associated with how many people can be in the room. But but we also have to look about how that then gets interpreted by the family, right? That doesn't get interpreted well either. So in terms of the enterprise, everyone in, on the team has. I come from the business side, right? Everyone on the team has to be included in what we're trying to achieve when we're talking about justice. Mm -hmm. So I'm an MD student first year, but I've been a hospital chaplain for three years. Okay. Two years on the palliative care team inside the hospital. 
So this is what I do all the time when I'm with families. So at the point of moving towards, we've done everything we can yeah. do, and it, these right. are the options, and we would like for you to go right. with the comfort care. Yeah. At first, in my experience, those conversations have been hard for families. So when I'm, when I'm available and present, I think what I'm able to do is to is to communicate what the family is feeling about what he just said, right. uh, whether it's a hospice or a palliative care situation, um, and also what the team or right. my hospital whom I represent, sure. uh, as far as the rules and what can happen at this point. So right. I'm sort of in the middle. Right. But what I try to bring to the table is that... Um, your family member's been in the ICU. Right. You've heard what the medical professional had to say. Exactly. I know what you've explained to me about mm -hmm. Christ and how you see mm -hmm. death. Mm -hmm. So, first of all, why don't we get you out of the ICU mm -hmm. into a more private room yeah. where you can have more family members right. in, up mm -hmm. in our you know, floor. Mm -hmm. That's one thing mm -hmm. that most folks, in my experience, yeah. have accepted. Right. Okay. Mm -hmm. So that you can be with people. Exactly. The other thing is that that would mean that the all of the aggressive care is now over. Right. So I guess what I'm trying to say is that um, I have experienced that when things are laid out plainly, right. especially to African-American families, exactly. it's a little more accepting that, you know, you're not trying to kill my family mm -hmm. member. This is the illness. This is the progression. Right. This is the prognosis. Mm -hmm. And given a little bit of time, mm -hmm. sometimes even up to 24 hours, right. are more accepting of mm -hmm. going with the hospice or palliative care. But, but listen to the layers that you've described, right? right? First of all, you understand, you under, you, you're ex explaining that you understand culturally, right? right? And sensitively, because they don't have to be the same. Culturally and sensitively, what the family is, is trying to say, what they're experiencing. That's number one, right? You understand what the rules are, number two. So you're acting as the intermediary between these two potentially, they don't have to be conflicting, but potentially conflicting, right? Number three, because you told them what they need to hear, you told them the very specifics. This is how it operates in this context. Right. But I would also say that, and this is where it becomes an enterprise issue, right? 20, you, or you bargained for 24 hours. Just let them have 24 hours, mm -hmm. right? That doesn't happen all the time, no. right? No. And in fact, what doesn't happen, what happens at least as often is you have one person come in the room Right? The next shift, the next person comes in the room, right? Everybody's saying the same. This feels like aggression. It does. A lot of right? it feels like aggression. That's what families express. What it feels expect. like aggression, mm -hmm. right? So, but again, we've ex you've explained several different layers. It doesn't happen, it, and, it all, and it all comes out of context. It does. And one more thing. Mm -hmm. That approach doesn't always work all the time. I know. Okay, so I, wanna, I know. Right. I, I know. That, and and let me honest, that it absolutely. And let me tell you, when, and when I get to that, because same thing happens. Not as serious a situation. Same thing happens in the classroom. Mm -hmm. Right. 
Because these are the same students who I have who are undergraduates <coughs> hoping to move into the slots where you all are, right? When that happens, let me tell you, let me tell you what I do. Because this is a part of trying to understand as well. The advantage that I have that some of the people when they don't have is I can code switch, right? And sometimes when, when it's still unaccepted, but that's still coming out of culture, right? Oh, yes. Right? Dr. Smith. Well, I think the 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 interesting thing about religiosity from a this is now I'm speaking sort of from the medical side is that I it seems to me like um, on a sort of like pluralistic traditional like American medical team there's not sort of like a lack of understanding about the relationship between culture and religiosity. And I would even actually like expand it from black people to like multiple groups of people of color mm -hmm. um, being just sort of like actually more religious or at least perceived as more religious. Right. And I think that the, the perception is not like an unawareness of religiosity, but it's of what it means. So in this case where it's like opposing physician-assisted suicide, that's something that, like, at least I think for Christians in this room, we're like, yeah, no, that's a good thing. But if you're, if you're trying to have a discussion about, like, end-of-life care, and it's being, with the religiosity is being perceived as um, sort of like an unreasonable way of thinking, mm -hmm. then actually, as a Christian medical person, often I'm looking for ways to oppose that, not because I'm opposing religiosity, but because I'm like, this actually seems like a skewed way of using your religiosity to make decisions. Mm -hmm. And um, and in the, in the like, like God's going to do a miracle, and that means that I can't make a decision, not that I think is better, but that actually, you know, this is all sort of objective, subjective, like question. Right. But, right. but in a way where even I think religious medical people are perceiving religiosity as something that's not sort of in service to the faith, it's actually like a warped view sure. or a distorted view, and that that seems to be more prevalent in more religious groups, which then gets translated to like, these kinds of patients will not let go, right. because they have a warped understanding mm -hmm. of what Jesus is like, and what this means for how they should treat their child mm -hmm. in the ICU, and is clearly going to die. So, um, I guess my question would be, how do you how do you understand, as a as a religious person, and a, 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 for all of us, like whether we're chaplains or um, like medical practitioners, how we interpret religiosity when religiosity really can lead to po positive and faithful ways right. of responding to questions about end of life or physician assisted suicide, but also can lead to really mm -hmm. distorted ways of seeing that. And, mm -hmm. Once again, it, um, for me, the reality is, because, you know, this is an educational endeavor for me. It has to be, because, I, in, so in religious studies, we refer to that as the ambiguity of religiosity, right? It can go either way. It can add something positive, it can add something that could be negative. And plus, there, you know, even if you choose one faith tradition, they're not interpreted the same way by each person, right? So, um, um I'm sorry, I have a lot of classroom stuff going through my mind <laughs> in terms of how students respond. So the reality is you're, you're, you may not be able to do exactly what you want in that particular moment. Until we get more, um, this becomes an educational issue for me. 
um, that we have to realize the expanse of Christianity, even among African Americans. That was one of the questions I hoped that we could explore. That, um, and in that case, then, I think you're doing what you need to do. I think that you're doing um, what you can do, which is to, uh, actually, I, I like this approach here, that, you can, that you're talking as an intermediary. Does that make sense? Because that's what else. What else would you do? I mean, that's what you have to do because you actually have the knowledge of both, um, both sets of cultural issues. Because medicine has its own culture, right? Right. And what we're talking about is how can we bridge the gap between these two cultures? What kinds of language? What kinds of behaviors can we, in fact, um, come up with that allows us to bridge bridge the gap until there's more. Um, Diversity in the uh, in in the use of beliefs. Can I just share maybe a story? Uh, sure. In relation to, to what mm-hmm. you were just saying, in my uh, Gabrielle. Danielle. Danielle. My daughter's name is Gabrielle, and so you know. So anyway, so maybe I'll speak about like, I'm sorry. Yeah. This is really good question. So there was. Um, I had I worked with a, a hospice palliative care doc when I was doing work as a hospice ethicist. I remember a family raised this you know question mm-hmm. about you know God and, and you know of course these things go either way. It was interesting how he took his kind of professional hat off and he just sat down and he says, "So do you believe in a God who can you know work miracles and who's you know powerful uh, and who's been with you up to this point and seen you through so many different endeavors?" Right? They were like, "Yeah, yeah." And he just said, "You know, I believe in that kind of God too." And then he refrain, and you could just see the mm-hmm. the dynamic kind of change. He says, "Now, if that's the case, right?" So he just reasoned with them mm-hmm. through. It was genuine in that sense because they shared a similar tradition, right? You can't do this in every instance. Mm-hmm. But he just reasoned with them through the process in terms of if it's that kind of God, then you know, some of these decisions we can make, you know, is not going to impact some of these other kinds of issues. But what was fascinating about that, even as we debriefed uh, and kind of wrestled with these various dynamics. Uh, is this notion that so many people feel that that's the only kind of thing that they have that they can cling to, like appeal to some type of you know religion, and then they also know that pe- uh, medical professionals sometimes are a little right. uh, uh, <coughs> think not very highly or dismissive, perhaps mm-hmm. of you know kind of these religious values, and so mm-hmm. it, it is interesting how sometimes people cling to those not necessarily for reasons that might be within the tradition but as of some type of clinging to to power right, right in, in some regards and the question I wanted to raise or in the comment you know, I kind of wanted to make a little bit earlier uh, before Danielle's wonderful <laughs> uh, in question it, it's just it, the role of faith communities in this right, right? Uh, and this is one of the things that Aaron mentioned about Richard Payne who worked mm-hmm. so hard to try to inform the faith to do that work ahead of time, mm-hmm. right? And exactly. So that there's, there are people trained and understand these various mm-hmm. questions and what, you know, hospital care is, so they're mm-hmm. not really trying to think through it for the first time exactly. in the crisis mode. Right. So I just think there's something that's really fascinating and powerful uh, about that we have those worlds kind of coming together, so... I, no, I, that's really helpful. I mean, that's. I mean, it's, when I talk about it as an educational endeavor, that's what I mean from my from my vantage point. Um, but there's always education in communities um, where it's probably needed even more urgently um, because I'm using I'm 
I'm working with um, the thought of Linda Barnes, a medical anthropologist who says, you know, you've got to grab folks when they're undergrads. And so I've been very happy to be working with undergraduates before they get to, to um, um, divinity school, before they get to medical school. Most of them want to go to, sorry, MDiv students. Most of them want to go to medical school. So, so I'm working with them before they get there because they're, they're you know, how curriculums are too busy. They're not going to get they're going to they're going to be in the situation and then not be able to um, really have time to necessarily reflect like you all have this opportunity to reflect. So this is part of our, each of us educating from the spot where we are. I saw another hand. Oh, yes. So you, you obviously you work in religious studies and and you also uh, wear the hat of a theologian or thinking writing theologically. Mm -hmm. How would you, if you had those two um, uh, council members and they had just said what they said, the two clips you gave them, mm -hmm. and you're speaking to them as a fellow Christian, even as a pastor, what would you, what would you say? I wouldn't be speaking to them in that way. <laughs> speaking to them in terms of honestly my response that I've thought about this my response to them is uh, a conversation about religious liberty right yeah because we um, we think about religious liberty in um, somewhat narrow ways and and this is in part you know perhaps comes as a part of my own experience at working at an institution where there's so much religious diversity we really think about religion so the council person who said, for example, I need to put my own, I need to put my own aside. And I, I heard a couple, for both of those clips, I heard a couple of gasps every, every now, right? That this is anathema to who we say we are as Americans, that because they're saying, we have to presume that they're saying because of their role as legislators, that their religiosity, their own personal religiosity doesn't play a part. And yet, you're representing persons who have, who are in communities who clearly identify with religiosity. So you're setting aside constituents, period. So that's why I would approach it more as a, actually, frankly, as a political issue. I just think it's interesting also as a theological challenge for. Christians in the world today. But what's the what's the what's the more coherent way to think as a Christian about that? Well, that's obviously a whole other seminar. But, uh, it is, it is, but it's also in part why I think that theology is going to be insufficient. Which is why I bring in the sociology. I think we also have to give. When I'm talking about content and form, I'm talking about we have to make sure that we're adding. Um, content is important, but form and structure. That that the form and structure in the African American context, not that it isn't in others, but in particular, this is the context that I work in, is about wholeness. It's about the whole person being able to live in the context of being a racial minority. Yeah, I would say just one of the destructive things, you picked, in fact, you picked these out, says something. I have taken care of many African-American patients over the years, and these are obviously uh, 
not in the role of patient, but what it struck me as a very culturally kind of, it just struck me as, as, as the kind of way of talking that was not resonant with my experience right. of Exactly. Exactly. Yes, Thank you for coming back to those clips. They really got me because of the disenfranchisement. Mm -hmm. And because like there's there's a cultural script right. that we've assimilated. And I think we see this on talk shows and we see these in public discussion forums, these rituals of liberalism where people privatize mm -hmm. things that actually mm -hmm. shape their entire world under this pretense yeah. that somehow these decisions are being made apart from considerations of morality or something that's doing the heavy lifting exactly. that gets identified as religion. If they, ha if they had spoken consistently with their beliefs, what would have happened to them politically? Well, the first person lost anyway. Yeah. <laughs> right? She's the one. She's the one without the job. The one who was Health and Human Services, um, the other woman uh, is still on council. She she did eventually won. I, and I did try to speak to both of them um, because I you know I want to be fair to the to my own interpretation because I hear it as a cultural script, right? I hear it as, as a cultural script on two le levels. I hear it as a general American cultural script, but I also hear it as anathema to African American cultural script, and so. Um, I wanted to know more, and I have yet to get more. Um, so, yeah, so she lost anyway. The person who voted no lost anyway. And the person who voted yes uh, remains on council. She uh, remains on council for another term as an at-large member. So she did what she was supposed to do, right? Which leads us to wonder... Who's the cultural? Who's the? Who exactly are the constituents? Right. This is. I don't think it can be taken apart from uh, Washington D.C. as a gentrifying community. Oh, thank you. So, uh, thank you for this conversation. I, I had the experience of two or three years ago of um, speaking on a panel, a community <coughs> panel in Orange County, North Carolina, which is where Chapel Hill is, which is. Um, a lot less diverse than Durham County is, but it's still got about 30 percent African American population. But this is a panel on, on physician-assisted suicide, and, and I was speaking against it, but there was a whole other bunch of people who were speaking for it. But I, I was struck in that in that um, in that session because the audience was at least 99 percent um, highly educated, older white adults, liberal politically, who absolutely did not want ever to be in a position where they were not in control over the way that their lives ran and worked mm -hmm. and were very passionate about the need for a North Carolina suicide law and um, and I just left thinking like this was a this was a just an a, a incredibly um, evocative display of whiteness like, yeah. I mean it was like white people who were very much sort of clamoring for control, and, and so I just wonder how. And you've mentioned, you know, that that, that those who avail themselves of assisted suicide laws are overwhelmingly white, disproportionate to the populations of whatever the you know the, the states are or communities. So I guess I, I guess I just wonder how. Um, I, I guess I'd just love for you to comment on that because I'm, I'm trying to think about how to to name that because um, it seems to me that the assisted suicide discourse in general is 
overwhelmingly driven by what kind of white well, essentially concerns. well right yeah. essentially persons of privilege yeah, yeah, I mean, I'm not saying that's entirely the case, but I think right. that the driver of the conversation is largely white people. Yeah. The, the, those who are kind of moving the conversation forward are white people of means and education who really do not want to be out of control. Uh, I mean, that's, my, that's my... Well, that's what I hear. That's, that's what I hear when I hear the conversation as well, especially this word control. This word control takes over... Um, yes, it's about autonomy, but it takes uh, it's um, disproportionately large in the conversation, and disproportionately proportionately in uh, deep in the conversation, and that's actually my my biggest worry is that in the legalization movement, what we're really saying is what we're really doing is culturally normalizing physician-assisted suicide, and um, so so my question for myself is. Yeah, I'm looking at this. Here's the word right here. Is this a chaotic? Is this a, just a <laughs> a chaotic effort? Yeah, but but I feel like I can't not say something, right? That um, because I see cultural differences and I see what what gets represented or who gets represented in the use of that word control and the face of persons who are using that word control. But I have to tell you that. Um, as an exercise of cultural normalization, one of the African-American members on council took up the language of control. And, and it was perverse in a way because what she was saying was, I want the constituents in my relatively poor, largely African-American ward to have the same kind of control as the people over here in this other community. <laughs> and this is so perverse, right? That you're fighting for their right to die using tropes that are not tropes that African Americans usually use. It's just what a perverse use of the word essentially justice. Now I have to be uh, in full disclosure, part of what troubled me about that particular um, fight is that I happened to go to seminary with her brother, right? So, and I happened to know that their father died of complications from emphysema. So I was, you know, I was aware of this family, and um, I have, I, I didn't even know what to do with that, right? It, it's just, it just, it's mind blowing. So I think your reading is correct. That's the bottom line. I, I read it the same, the same way. So the question is then. How do we? How do we at least gain some ground to have that conversation instead of the conversation that continues to push forward for legalization? Because I don't actually think that that conversation is going to go away. I think that that conversation about control is leading a lot of efforts. Yes. Right. We can talk. Thank you. <laughs> Uh, other questions? We oh, we're over time. Well, we actually you know we know it, you want to talk to mail folks. Some folks have late. Feel free to do that. We can stay a few more minutes and keep talking. We'll okay. be in at one fifteen. Oh, okay, so, okay. I okay. did have a have a uh, I have an outside of the box question on a different topic, but I'm not going to do that unless we until we do this question. Any other comments? comments. I just have a question in general. Um, 
So I think, and thank you very much for the Thank you. Um, so one of my questions would be, it, it feels like a lot of times when we talk about a specific cultural groups, beliefs, or religiosity, mm -hmm. sometimes that's very helpful, especially for somebody like myself that doesn't come from that context. Um, but I also wonder, like, how do we avoid putting anybody from that group in right. a certain context? And, like, still respecting the in front of you. And we all belong to different uh, cultural groups and gender and class and so on. So how do we think about, like, not going off that John Iger way? Yeah, that's always a problem, right? It's, um, so I think this is where I'm always trying to get a sense of what are what's the culture in a particular environment? So what is the culture in... Uh, so, uh, Chaplin, I'm sorry, I don't know your name. Aaron. Thank you, Aaron. Uh, Chaplin Aaron has told us about his experience, right? And so um, part of what I'm always trying to get at, and this is why I was sort of, again, trying to get at the issue of the, and I asked Dr. Curlin this earlier, how do we use spiritual assessment? Because my experience is that it's often a checkbox, right? Since it's often a checkbox, then we're losing the opportunity to to know when to be individual versus to know that this other context exists. So we have to work with the tools that we have. And again, I'm a, I, this sounds like perhaps a very abstract kind of conversation, but I'm a real practical kind of person. I need to know how it works on the ground, right? And that's part of what you're asking too. How do I not put a person in a box when just because I'm aware of this context? But, but I want to add to you, just in terms of my personal experience, it's actually part of how I began to do this work. I was in a class in a hospital that shall not be named that where they were doing a class on, uh, I forgot what it was called, spirituality and race or spirituality and different groups or something. Sort of very similar to the question you're asked. And the assessment of African Americans was horrifying to me. Um, but then I also, but I talked to them, I was able to talk to the person and say, well, where'd you get this information? And understand that that's what he read in the literature. That was the literature that was available to him. So it really just kind of, you know, sort of spurred me to think, well, how can we at least have different literature? And the other issue for me is how can we also um, have more forums? where we're talking interdisciplinary, interdisciplinarily, you know what I'm trying to say. How, because usually we're talking in our own silos. We're talking in our own academic silos. And so um, part of getting out of, of that is being in different kinds of contexts. Yes, the context of pragmatism, but also the context of more interaction so that we are using context and content when it's useful but then understanding that it's only one piece. Because um, I know I'd like to be, as much as I identify with being black, I identify as an individual as well. Right? We all do. Let's take one more question from um, I think my question is probably a little bit more pastoral care communities um, and a little bit more focused on hospice and life rather than just suicide. So the story is I was working in the ICU a few months ago working with a Hispanic family who essentially had a, a failing over his our patient who was not going to recover, that somebody was going to die. And so eventually, over many weeks, they made the decision to 
transition to care focus on comfort. But they said a couple interesting things, which was that we have had to tell certain family, excited family members that they're not allowed to come to the hospital anymore because they disagree with what we're doing. There are members of our community, both church and cultural, who think that what we are doing is absolutely theologically and morally wrong. Um, and so they thought this was the right thing to do, but they were very compromised and conflicted about it. So what do we do as medical professionals, as, as pastors, as people, when people like that need to return to their communities after having had to make these incredibly difficult, complicated decisions that affect their ability to participate in that community and still be viewed as faithful? So let me just make sure I understand. So persons who were on the team needed to return to their community? No, Is that what? family members of the Okay, so you're talking, okay. Um, this is not my expertise. I'll tell anybody, I don't do pastoral care. Okay. But, um, I can only talk about my experience there. Um, when you return to community, because it's not like you're ever outside community, right? Um, I think there's still room for outreach from us. So we don't do a lot um, in, in healthcare. We don't do as much as we probably could uh, in terms of aftercare, right? Because we need to see that as part of the continuum of the relationship. And this is where I, I, I go back to my perspective on enterprise, on medicine as an enterprise. Um, just like it took more than the care team themselves to say you can't return to the hospital, to see your love because the loved one was still alive at that point right okay um that was a decision that someone made and i'm not questioning the decision but i'm saying that that was a decision that someone made um so it, it has to be seen as part of how is this adding to or detracting from the relationship with family the question i'm asking is i would turn the question again to um uh, who has the who in in the experience in that particular experience that you're describing who has the authority to talk about that in terms of an after um, in terms of aftercare for that specific family but in terms of policy and procedure for the next family that's going to go through this particular experience and that's i mean it's a matter of learning from that experience again for that individual family as well as for um, the team in general. I'll say it. my experience is that some um, some teams go to that kind of um, solution more than some other teams. And I don't mean like care team. I just mean some physical settings. You know what I mean? Like maybe the yeah. space is too small. Oh, or sorry, I should clarify. Yeah. Oh. The patient's immediate family made the decision not to allow other family members. Oh, okay. Okay, but that has to happen, right? That has sometimes that has to happen because they're taking care of themselves at that point. Is there? So I'm sorry, maybe I misunderstood no, you. I don't think I explained clearly, but yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. But so why is that? Why is that a problem? Why are you seeing that as a problem? Well, so my question is, they they have to say in order to make this difficult decision, we as a family have to cut ourselves off from our community mm -hmm. temporarily. But then at some point, they have to return to that community too after having cut themselves off in this kind of. This is a part of normal life. Right? People who come from dysfunctional families cut themselves off all the time. It just doesn't feel good based on the the, the um, particular circumstance that you're describing. Yeah. 
But that's yeah. But no, that's guess, that happens all the time. I guess my question is because the nature of them needing to cut themselves off is, is particularly right. It is right. I'm okay with that. They need to take care of themselves. But I will, you know, I actually, this so, like I said, I'm, I don't really do pastoral care, so I can't, maybe I can't really adequately answer your question. Some of the other people in the room who do pastoral care might be, might be more helpful. I'm sorry. We, we've, come, we've run out of time, but it does remind me, it kind of circles back, you know, discussion or two, which are identifying with those two council members mm-hmm. who are obviously, on some level, probably asking themselves, dealing with the, the pressures they're feeling internally from their, their, their communities and trying to make sense of why, and the way this family trying to make sense of why it's okay that they're going to go all life support even though it seems like that's inconsistent with their, with their communities committed to. How is it they're going to support this bill when that seems inconsistent with what their communities committed to? Um, and that would just be really like if I get talking. Please join me in thanking Dr. Long.